Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Professor Tomika Brown-Nagin about her new book, Civil Rights Queen, a biography of the civil rights icon and the first African-American woman appointed to the federal judiciary, Constance Baker Motley. Professor Brown-Nagin is the dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School, and a Professor of History at Harvard University. Professor, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me, Michael. So I'd like to start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy to. Big question. Uh, let's see what I, I will emphasize. I am the Dean of the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard which is uh, the successor institution to Radcliffe College. It is uh, now a world-renowned uh, center for interdisciplinary research. Uh, I love being the dean of Radcliffe in part because I am an interdisciplinary scholar, so it, it feels like home to me um, to, to lead a, a place that is so welcoming of scholars across the sciences social sciences, uh, arts, and humanities, and the professions. Um, what else can I say about myself? I am a legal historian and constitutional scholar, and uh, I am delighted to send this book about Constance Baker Motley out into the world at such a timely moment. So why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write this book after uh, writing a book about the struggle for uh, civil rights using Atlanta as a jumping off point and featured a chapter about the Atlanta school desegregation case that Motley handled. And at that time, I noticed that there was relatively little scholarship about Motley and certainly not enough given her tremendous impact on the law. And so I set out to write about her, um, to write a biography that really is more than the story of one life. It is a story about the impact of uh, this remarkable woman on social and legal change in 20th century America. You write that her story also challenges the enduring fiction that pure talent best explains who succeeds in life or that discrimination alone explains who does not. Can you flesh that out a bit? Sure. Well, I mean by that, um, first of all, to, to not minimize the fact of discrimination. After all, Motley experienced quite a lot of it on the basis of gender and race, and I discuss uh, many of those instances in my book um, as an initial matter as a young black girl growing up in New Haven, no one, including her own parents, thought that she should pursue a career in the law. In fact, her parents didn't know why she would want to go to college. It was a very unusual aspiration for anyone at the time, much less um, uh, a woman from young woman from Motley's uh, station in life. Um, the, the point about discrimination not explaining everything is meant to highlight that Motley was unique, and she um, carried herself in, in such a way that she was an attractive candidate for Thurgood Marshall, uh, for instance, who hired her on the spot when she went to the offices of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in 1945 seeking a, an internship. And she also was sought out by Democratic Party officials during the mid-1960s uh, who wanted her to run for office in New York because she was such an attractive figure with name recognition. And of course, Lyndon Baines Johnson appointed her to the federal court, an historic appointment, um, because she had excelled and also because, um, again, she was a she was a likable figure. She um, she she attracted uh, support in many quarters because of what she had to offer, which was not only her intelligence, uh, but a way of being that made her um, 
the kind of, of woman and black women who could succeed as an insider in America at a time when that was very hard indeed. You write that there are two principal questions that sort of underpin your book. The first being, how do outsiders, women in particular, gain power and with what benefits and at what costs? And how does access to power shape and change the individuals who initially sought it because of a commitment to social justice? Those are two important questions. If you could, again, talk us through them, that'd be very appreciated. Sure. Well, on the first question about how um, she gained power and how others in her circumstance gained power, as I mentioned earlier, um, she managed it because of her uh, high intelligence. But not only that, she was able to um, gain uh, notice and mentorship from a whole range of people, including uh, teachers in high school who um, who sought to provide to her certain opportunities that weren't available in her home. For instance, I talk about a Ms. Marston, a teacher who would bring Motley and other um, West Indian kids to her home, and she would have teas with them. She would read American classics to them, uh, and she um, exposed Motley to the teachings of W.B. Du Bois uh, and thus helped to inspire a social consciousness in Motley that was um, invaluable as she sought to first attend college and then and then law school. She attracted the support of a philanthropist, a New Haven philanthropist uh, named Clarence Blakesley, who uh, offered to pay her college and her law school tuition after hearing Motley speak at a local uh, civic organization, um, which was just, uh, Motley herself called it a fairy tale to, to have that happen, this intervention by this uh, uh, white male philanthropist. Um, she uh, was, as I mentioned, hired on the spot by Thurgood Marshall. Um, and I could go on and on and on to, to describe both Motley's mix of uh, characteristics and um, the opportunities that she gained and the luck uh, that she experienced um, as she sought to, to pursue a career. And then as to the question of what I call the price of a ticket, meditating on James Baldwin, I mean that Motley sacrificed quite a lot personally as she climbed the ladder of success. Um, and I, I, I don't know how, how we want to unpack that. There, there's quite a lot to say from her experiencing some setbacks at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, to uh, setbacks even as she gained the historic nomination to the United States District Court. Um, it was not the appointment that Johnson originally wanted to make. He He initially wanted to appoint her to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, that did not come to pass uh, because of tremendous blowback uh, from friends and foes alike. So unpack the book in the way that you've written it, which is talking a little bit to go back in time to her very beginnings, because her parents, Willoughby Baker and Rachel Huggins, were from the British colony of Nevis. And they had a different perspective on race and African-Americans. So can you talk about her parents and the teachings that she learned from them? Happy to. Motley's, then Baker's, experiences in her home with parents who had immigrated to this country during the early 20th century from the West Indies were formative experiences. And let me tell you a little bit about the way in which she was raised. Her parents were culturally conservative, uh, religious, 
And her father held certain uh, prejudices against African-Americans. He thought of himself and all West Indians as superior to black Americans. He didn't even let his children play with the black migrants from the South who uh, landed in New Haven as he did, seeking work and success. Uh, Willoughby and virtually all of Baker's male relatives worked at Yale University. Uh, he was a chef for Skull and Bones for a time and other New Haven uh, eating houses. And the thing that's so interesting is that he read the privilege of his white male wealthy charges into himself. And uh, so he, he was quite a an arrogant and conceited man. And as I explain in my book, either because of or in spite of her, the teachings of her father, Motley grew up to be the civil rights queen. Um, she, uh, and, and this is a, a thought about gender and her experience growing up, she did not want to marry a man like her father who uh, was strict and who um, followed all of the gender conventions of the day. Baker's Motley's mother never worked outside of the home. She kept house. Uh, and, and so one can observe that Baker uh, very much rebelled against uh, at least some of the aspects of the teachings of her parents while growing up. At the same time, her family's sense of being special, certainly, I would say, worked to uh, Baker Motley's advantage. It girded her when she uh, was this singular woman working in the South, litigating civil rights cases. It protected her from all sorts of aspersions um, that were cast her way by virtue of her being uh, Black and a woman. You write that she thought of herself as being special, which is, you know, as you described, arrogant in some way. But when I read the book, it did prepare her well for the travails that she would face throughout her career. So there's the yin and the yang of, of her father's philosophy. She attends Hill House High School in New Haven, which, as a footnote, is where my father-in-law went and his siblings, they're all multi-generation New Haven-ers or ites. And you say of her that she dreamed of going to college and law school, but there was no opportunity. Three years after the graduation from high school, she's still not doing that. And then you've mentioned it already, but can you tell us a, a little bit more about Clarence Blakesley and how that fortuity came to pass? Because she challenged him when they first met, and that wouldn't normally be the way you want to start an interview. That's right. Clarence Blakesley, um, first of all, had uh, a son who was at, it was in high school um, with Motley. He knew that her record at Hill House uh, meant something uh, special about her, that she was an achiever. Um, and yet he was surprised that she was not in college. And he learned this after she did challenge him during a meeting at what was called the Q House. Now, Blakesley had subsidized the building of the Q House, which was meant for the black community in New Haven. And yet they were not really using the Q House in the way that Blakesley had imagined. And the conversation where Baker challenged him um, was about that issue. Why were the Blacks of New Haven not using Q House? And Baker said, to the chagrin of some of the adults and Black adults in New Haven uh, who counted on Blakesley to uh, offer his charity, she said, well, they're not using Q House because it's not been truly designed for Blacks. Um, 
and it was quite a a daring thing for her to say and Blakesley thereafter invited her to his office where he questioned her about her aspirations and did offer to pay her college tuition and also her law school tuition. He sent his own son to Harvard Law School, he explained, and if he could send him to Harvard, then by golly, he could pay for Motley to attend Columbia Law School. And the rest is, is history. But one step before she goes to Columbia Law School, which she was quite underwhelmed by, as you write, is that she starts off at Fisk and doesn't like Fisk and switches to NYU. Can you talk a little bit that? Because that, I found that sort of interesting, that she was unhappy at Fisk and moved. Hmm. Well, Motley uh, was a socially conscious um, young woman. She was involved in numerous civic organizations, labor organizations, even as a teenager. And that is the self that she took to Fisk. And she didn't like Fisk because she thought that the African-Americans whom she met there were not sufficiently socially engaged. Uh, They were more interested, she believed, in social life. And so she left, but not before appreciating um, the range of figures and families in the African-American community. For instance, at Fisk, she met a black elite, people whose uh, parents and even grandparents had attended college, and that left quite an impression uh, on her. Uh, And yet she did think that uh, NYU would be a better fit, and indeed it was. At NYU, she traveled in activist circles, met people on the American left, uh, lived in Harlem at the YWCA, and met her future husband in Harlem and experienced the black cultural Mecca uh, that uh, she had long wanted to experience. And so it's an interesting story that reflects Baker's self-knowledge from an early age. In fact, I start the book by quoting a poem that Baker wrote at only 15 years old, and it truly shows how thoughtful um, she was about the social conditions of the day and how she yearned from a very early age for something more and to be involved in what was to become the struggle for racial equality in this country. What I found interesting about her politics was that she combined perception of the importance of race and class, that this was sort of the left of the 1930s, which was very class-based. And she adopted that view, this race-class relationship, which we saw later on in the civil rights movement with the Poor People's Campaign and the like. How did it come to pass that she fell into this political ideology? Well, of course, it reflected her own circumstances. She was growing up in the working class, came of age during the Great Depression. And even if her father uh, was pleased to interact with these wealthy people on the campus of Yale, Baker knew her place in the hierarchy. And she knew because, for example, her parents didn't have money to send her to college Uh, that class was a profound fault line in American life. And so um, she developed a class consciousness because of her own circumstances and because of the context in which she grew up during the Great Depression. And then um, she saw and experienced the New Deal. And so class was a a very present uh, reality for uh, Baker. I also want to note, however, that over time, Baker 
and the entire civil rights movement, um, or most of, I should say, the civil rights movement, certainly the lawyers with whom she went on to work, moved away from the focus on uh, class disadvantage, in part because of the impact of the Cold War, where the kinds of leftist groups that privilege, prioritize um, class disadvantage uh, came to be uh, looked uh, at askance um, during the Cold War, um, when those same groups were uh, listed as threats to the national security of the United States. And so, although she did grow up um, being well aware of that dual disadvantage um, as a price of admission, really, into the elite of civil rights lawyers, uh, she, she moved away from that. So she graduates Columbia Law School, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Pat Wald, and Sandra Day O'Connor. She's not really being sought after by the law firms of America, and she is looking for work. And tell us about the encounter she has, which I think was life-changing for her, with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, the great Thurgood Marshall. Right. Um, I write in the book that Motley, um, it, it was a dream job for her to be hired by Thurgood Marshall uh, on the spot in 1945. Uh, he responded to her very differently from than the, the white male law firm partners who essentially closed the door in her face when she went to seek employment um, during World War II, making her experience akin to that of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sandra Day O'Connor, and, and many other women who were just not wanted in the most lucrative sectors of the legal profession. Um, and so Motley went on to um, work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or the Inc. Fund, as it's also called, for some 20 years, alongside Thurgood Marshall, and while there had a tremendous impact on uh, some of the most important cases of 20th century constitutional law, including Brown versus Board of Education, and the variety of other cases that changed the legal architecture of this country. So before we talk about Brown, can you just give us a minute or two about Joel Wilson Motley Jr.? Sure. This was the man whom Baker married, becoming Constance Baker Motley. He was from the Midwest. He had migrated to Harlem for all the reasons that uh, other young black uh, people migrated to Harlem. And the thing about him uh, that made him such a great partner for her is that he was pretty mild-mannered. Uh, he did not uh, compete with his wife. He supported her. Uh, they had an egalitarian marriage before that was a thing. Um, and uh, so she credits him for helping her become the path-breaking lawyer that she did and path-breaking politician and judge. Uh, she needed a spouse um, like that to become the civil rights queen. And we saw that same sort of equal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with Pat Wald, and others. It seemed to be that at that time, if you didn't have a husband who was a bit of a feminist, you were going to have a harder time succeeding as a woman. Well, it's not just at that time. It continues to be the case that uh, professional women who succeed uh, in their realms need supportive spouses. I suppose that's right. So can we turn a little bit now to the substance of her legal career and perhaps start with Brown Parts one and two, and talk about that litigation? Happy to. 
Motley was among the lawyers who uh, helped to litigate Brown. In fact, she wrote the original complaint uh, in the case. And so in a real way, uh, Brown's Board of Education is a byproduct of her intellectual handy work. She also helped to conduct research and write the briefs um, in Brown versus Board of Education. And it was a really exciting time for her and for all of the lawyers who were making civil rights law, uh, creating the world that uh, we know of today, um, where there's a degree of, uh, well, first of all, where there's formal racial equality um, and a degree of opportunity that uh, Motley herself did not have, Marshall, Thurgood Marshall did not have, uh, no black American had, no matter how talented or ambitious. Um, I do note in the book that Motley put in the long hours required to litigate Brown alongside the men, and she was the uh, only woman lawyer at the Inc. Fund for most of her career there, um, even as she became pregnant, went on maternity leave, and then was the mother of an infant son, um, which is just a, a remarkable um, uh, circumstance to, to, to document. And then after the lawyers won uh, the initial case, Brown won in 1954. Uh, there was a case that involved the remedy. And the long and short of it is that the Supreme Court decision both validated Brown, but left it to the state and local authorities and the lawyers uh, who are working on behalf of plaintiffs to actually sort out the details of the remedy. And Constance Baker Motley was a lead lawyer um, in the numerous cases that uh, were litigated to implement Brown versus Board of Education. She um, was a lead lawyer, lawyer in the cases that implemented, implemented Brown in Atlanta, uh, Birmingham, Mobile, and, and just a range of other um, cities across the nation. She was front and center in that battle. So to be clear to our listening audience, Brown overruled Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the separate but equal Supreme Court decision, making it unconstitutional for American educational facilities and public schools to discriminate on the basis of race. And so that was Brown 1 and a monumental decision. But in Brown 2, we have this conception of all deliberate speed which is the pace at which the Supreme Court said the lower courts should implement Brown, as you've said. And what the Southern states principally did was resist Brown. They created all sorts of barriers to prevent its implementation. Justice, uh, Chief Justice Warren said that the courts, in supporting the all-deliberate speed determination, said these courts will make sure, these lower courts, that the defendants make a prompt and reasonable start toward Brown. That wasn't the case, though. It didn't work out that way, did it? That's right, which was the story I was telling about why Motley and other lawyers had to um, really engage in a long and protracted battle in many cities to actually implement the rule of Brown one. The Supreme Court in Brown held, uh, just to, to be clear, that state-mandated segregation in schools was unconstitutional. There were a number of cases that followed Brown where um, the Plessy versus Ferguson was found unlawful in the variety of contexts in which it had been applied. Uh, and ultimately was ruled unconstitutional in the bus uh, segregation case, um, Gale versus Browder. Her career, as you said, took her through the challenging of the resistance by the South 
to the implementation of Brown, this massive resistance, as it was called, which Mary Lou Werner of the Washington Evening Star won the Pulitzer Prize for documenting. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about some of the cases that she brought to implement Brown, University of Alabama and Georgia, but most particularly the University of Mississippi, because that was really the most profound case, I think, that she brought in this effort. That's right. Uh, so if you'd like for me to talk about the higher education cases that Mutley was involved in, I would certainly uh, cite the Ole Miss case. It was her most famous case involving James Meredith, a client who had a messianic zeal to desegregate the flagship uh, university in his home state. And yet it was an arduous battle that uh, had Motley repeatedly flying to Jackson. And uh, she called it the, the last battle of the Civil War uh, because it was so arduous, so hard fought, required so many hearings, um, and ultimately resulted in Meredith's matriculation, uh, but at the same time left two men dead. Uh, because of the violent uh, resistance to his presence on, on campus. There were other cases that she litigated, including the University of Alabama case with Arthurine Lucy, who recently died and um, who years after that initial battle to desegregate, the university had a building named for her on campus, which I was happy to see. And Motley also litigated the case that uh, killed segregation at the University of Georgia, where she had plaintiffs uh, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, who became Charlene Hunter-Galt, the famous journalist. It took a toll on her, mentally and physically, this litigation. And as you indicated, at the same time she was trying to raise a family, Am I right to say that they were surprised at this resistance and defy approach to Brown's implementation by like Governor Barnett and others? Was there an expectation that the courts would ensure that there's a more speedy integration or cases like Griffin versus the County Board of Education where here in Virginia, they decided that they would just close the public schools rather than integrate them? Well, sure. The NAACP lawyers likely underestimated the degree to which white Southerners would resist Brown versus Board of Education. It's also true that the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, through its decision in Brown II, which gave so much discretion to U.S. district courts, which were creatures of their local environments, um, often uh, presided over by segregation, segregationists, um, did too little to promote school desegregation. And so I, I hardly blame the lawyers for um, underestimating uh, the foot dragging, the violence, just the, the um, resistance to what was the law of the land. Uh, it took a lot of courage and fortitude for Motley and Marshall and Bob Carter, Jack Greenberg, and, and so many others to defeat this determined uh, pushback against uh, Brown versus Board of Education and other cases. It took the intervention of then-President Kennedy uh, in some of this litigation to implement the ruling in Brown, yes? In uh, Mississippi, yes, uh, Kennedy um, uh, gave an address that importantly put the authority of the White House behind the effort. And also once Meredith was on campus, the executive provided some protection for him um, to ensure that he was able to actually matriculate and to ensure his protection even after he was uh, on campus. So notwithstanding all of this terrific 
litigation that Motley led and the toll it took on her. You talk about the setback of 1961. Can you talk about that for us, please? Sure. The setback of, of 1961 refers to Motley's failure to be selected as director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund after Thurgood Marshall is nominated and appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. She is disappointed. Uh, many of her African-American lawyer colleagues are disappointed. Um, and at the same time, Motley understands, appreciates that um, it would have been extraordinarily progressive for Thurgood Marshall and the fund to have anointed her, a woman, um, as the head of that organization. Women just didn't have the stature. Um, she reflected later on to uh, achieve such professional heights. And in fact, it, it's because of uh, a ruling by Motley that women who came after her um, started to achieve the, the stature that would have been needed for Marshall and others that a woman could handle that critically important job. So she was disappointed, but she always credited Thurgood Marshall for giving her her big break, saying that had it not been for Thurgood Marshall, no one ever would have heard of Constance Baker Motley. Yes, that's true, but we can't understate the the endemic chauvinism throughout the civil rights movement in this era, not only with respect to Motley and Marshall, but Ella Baker and Martin Luther King. The women of the civil rights movement were not treated as equals. Well, women outside of the civil rights movement, of course, weren't treated as equals. And so the movement is reflecting um, a broader structural problem uh, in the country that uh, receives attention during the late 1960s and early 1970s with American women demanding equality, following in part um, the, the playbook created by the civil rights movement. Uh, and so I, I discuss quite a lot in the book the synergies between the civil rights struggle and the struggle for women's rights and how Motley was situated within it. I'd like to fast forward. She leaves the law and becomes a New York State Senator and ultimately the Manhattan Borough President. Can you talk about her political career and then we'll turn to her time on the bench? Sure. Uh, Manhattan Borough President, she was elected in 1965. It was a big job, a breakthrough. Um, and she was courted by the Democratic Party because she had name recognition. Uh, it was thought that she might be the first black mayor of New York City and uh, perhaps go on to even greater heights. Um, at the same time, there were those who thought she should stay in her lane, uh, that she was insufficiently politically progressive, and this was in the context of the rise of black power, where a standard bearer for integration like Motley um, uh, had much less favor than those who were interpreting equality um, to mean empowerment, uh, black uh, representation, black um, uh, defining of the terms of, of uh entry into American society. Uh, and so it was quite an achievement that gave Motley the ability to heavily influence the budget of the city as a member of the Board of Estimate. Um, and so she was able to continue to promote the, um, the, the issues that she had fought for all of her life through this different kind of professional role, um, and then she goes onto the bench. Right. The book is entitled 
civil rights queen, but you could have, in some sense, called it Constance the First. She was the first in so many things that she undertook, and one of the firsts was as her appointment to the federal bench. So can you talk about that, please? Of course. It is an historic appointment in 1966 uh, by Lyndon Baines Johnson, who, of course, was very supportive of civil rights. He wanted to appoint um, women and people of color to high federal posts, including the federal bench. Um, he heavily vetted Motley, and she was lauded by Supreme Court justices, other federal judges, uh, many, everybody who was anybody in the civil rights movement. And so she did get the nod. But Johnson initially wanted to appoint her to the Second Circuit. Um, she he, he ultimately backed down because there was concern that to appoint Motley to that office, um, she would be filling the seat that Thurgood Marshall was then vacating uh, to um, given his nomination to the to be Solicitor General. It was just thought there was too much, too many blacks, too many black NAACP lawyers. And so she went on to the Southern District of New York. Um, but even then, uh, there were those who opposed her remarkably on the basis that her civil rights background was um, inappropriate to to the job um, because she might be biased um, or because her experience was too narrow, um, both of which claims were ridiculous. In fact, because of that experience, she was she was fair and she ruled as a judge without fear or favor. Um, sometimes. Uh, ruling for plaintiffs in civil rights cases, sometimes not. Um, it depended uh, on the facts of the case, as it should have. She didn't get the Second Circuit nod, also in part, am I right, because of what you call tepid support by New York Senator Robert Kennedy. What was that play there? Well, it was complicated. They had a history um, she had what you might say, describe as, as crossed him when she was in, um, she, when she was a New York state Senator, the details are, aren't, we don't need to go into the details, but it wasn't only that Kennedy was, um, the loudest voice arguing that it would be too much to promote Thurgood Marshall, and also appoint Motley to the Second Circuit. He favored the appointment of a white man, and that is what happened, uh, And but, but assented to her appointment to the federal district court. On the federal district court, she had some incredible cases, and we don't have time to talk about many of them, but I was wondering if you would just talk a little bit about Ludkey versus Kuhn, and Blank versus Sullivan and Cromwell, because I think those were instructive cases of the way she thought. Lucky was a case involving a female sports journalist, Melissa Lucky, who wanted to enter the locker room of the New York Yankees during the World Series. She wanted to do this because that was the context in which journalists got the best interviews. Um, excluded from the locker room, she had to wait uh, outside of the clubhouse uh, for interviews, or she had to try to engage the ball players when they were on the field. Um, and uh, she thought that the exclusion of her and all women uh, was was unlawful. And she brought the case. Motley, who knew nothing about. Uh, sports, by the way, um, was assigned to the case, and she ended up ruling in Lucky's favor uh, and denying that the privacy rights of the ballplayers uh, were sufficient to defeat 
Melissa Lucky's claim. Uh, and in a funny uh, line, she said, let them wear towels. In other words, um, that the that the choice was not between privacy and uh, Lucky's right to pursue her trade. Um, the, the ball players could take action to preserve their privacy, and at the same time, Lucky could um, pursue the interviews that she needed to make a career as a sports journalist. It was a truly controversial uh, case where bags of hate mail uh, came into Motley's uh, office because um, it was a Yankees, it was men, it was nakedness, and um, uh, a lot of people just weren't ready for that decision. The other case that you mentioned, Blank versus Sullivan and Cromwell, involved an early challenge under the Civil Rights Act, the Employment Discrimination Title VII, by women law school graduates who filed suit against the prestigious law firm arguing that they were not hired, or if they were hired, they weren't promoted on the same terms as men. Again, Motley drew the case after a spin of the wheel, and the law firm was not happy. In fact, an attorney for the law firm explicitly raised Motley's sex, her race, and her background as a civil rights lawyer, arguing that she should recuse from the case. Uh, Motley rejected um, that request in a brilliant opinion that is of enduring significance. She essentially turned the lawyer's argument on its head, uh, saying that if a judge's background and experiences alone were enough to disqualify him from a case, then no judge on the Southern District could hear the case because, of course, she was saying white men have a gender uh, and a race too and practice backgrounds. And so it was a, a terrific opinion. Um, she stayed on the case and eventually approved a settlement that opened the doors of uh, this most lucrative dimension of the legal profession to women. It's interesting too, because she rejected the notion of herself as a feminist. She said she was too busy fighting discrimination on the basis of race for men and women to become a feminist. Yet she stood by as a staunch ally of women's equality throughout her career. Right. So she didn't affix the label feminist to herself. Um, and that made perfect sense. After all, when she was asked the question about whether she was a feminist, she was a, a New York politician, and it would not have served her interests uh, to um, add another layer um, to the disadvantages that she already faced. And so she didn't call herself a feminist, but as I uh, write in my book, she certainly did feminism, uh, including through her breakthroughs as a politician, as a judge, and in a number of cases that she decided on the bench, uh, opening the doors of the professions to women, uh, lawyers, journalists, professors, and I could go on and on. You write that Motley shook up the world. Her life fills out the picture of change in the 20th century America and it throws light on the unfinished struggles. So can you take us out of the interview with talking about that and perhaps what her legacy is as you see it? Sure, well, as you likely have heard, um, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who's been nominated as, a, as the first black woman to uh, seat on the US Supreme Court, cited just Jackson 
um, as an inspiration, saying that she stands on Motley's shoulders. Surely that is the case. In fact, before Judge Jackson started to um, say that, I was saying that in uh, interviews uh, about the book, that Jackson and millions of, of women stand on the shoulders of Constance Baker Motley, who, uh, through her lawyering, uh, enabled um, uh, African-American students to attend integrated schools, high-quality schools, in the case of uh, Judge Jackson, um, through her example and through her um, rulings on the bench, she uh, opened up access to the legal profession to women like Judge Jackson. Uh, and through uh, enduring um, unfair attacks on her record, um, she uh, became a judge and uh, had a brilliant career as a judge, uh, couldn't quite make it onto the Second Circuit or to the Supreme Court herself, although she was touted uh, for it. Uh, and so um, her legacy uh, is equal workplace opportunity, uh, equal opportunity in society generally. And so we all are indebted to Constance Baker Motley for helping to change this country uh, to ensure that uh, America lives up to its promise of uh, equality for all. President Clinton said of her that she showed us what America could become. Indeed she did. The book is called Civil Rights Queen Dean Brown Nagin. I'm very grateful for you to take the time to speak to us about it. It's an important book. We've only touched on several of the themes in it. I encourage everyone to go buy it and read it. It's a fantastic read. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I've enjoyed our discussion. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.